0: Welcome to Rose Radio. It's October, guys.
1: I'm Hannah Allison, our national
0: organizer. And I'm Jahari Durhill. I organize with the North Carolina Piedmont DSA. And today we're going to be talking to John Grant. John is running for Position 8, which is an at-large seat in Seattle.
1: And we're also going to be talking to three members of the National Electoral Committee and the Brooklyn Electoral Working Group and all three of them also worked on Cotter Elia team's campaign here in New York. So let's get started.
0: So John, you're running for position eight, which is an at-large city council position in Seattle. And so if we could kind of do a, a sort of figurative drop-in in your, in your campaign today, um, what's, what's going on in, in the life of your campaign right now?
2: Yeah, well, you know, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate uh, the time to talk to folks on a national level. You know, I think what's really exciting about our campaign is that it's a truly grassroots effort. We have uh, hundreds of folks, in particular uh, members of the DSA, going out and knocking on doors. And we're on track to knock on about 50,000 doors here in Seattle. Now, that's a lot of conversations with voters at a really grassroots level, and for us, You know what we're trying to do is to really demonstrate that we can you know run a campaign outside of the political establishments outside of the usual power brokers that you see at city hall so that we can really push a not just a progressive agenda but a radical agenda and i think that for us we want to get away from the kind of transactional politics that we see and instead push a more transformative politics and i think that's what we're bringing together here in seattle So I think what's at stake here in Seattle is that, you know, this is the birthplace of the $15 minimum wage. And I think that Seattle can really be an incubator for social change. That's a model for the rest of the country. And what we're really trying to accomplish is to address the staggering income inequality in our city. This is one of the wealthiest cities in our country. And we are seeing a homeless population that is exploding. We have over 4,000 people living out on the streets at the same time that we are seeing dozens of cranes building new buildings to accommodate you know the hundreds of thousands of people who are moving to our city so the question that I think this campaign is asking is is there a way that we can channel that growth to channel that wealth and actually address these systemic issues of institutional racism of institutional poverty and I think that for us there's a lot that can be accomplished uh, we put forward a really bold proposal to build 5,000 units of homeless housing in the next five years. That would effectively end unsheltered homelessness in our city. And I think that's really excited a lot of people. The idea that we don't just need to nibble around the edges of these issues, but that we can really you know, attack these things in a systemic way. And that's what this campaign is about and why so many people have signed up to volunteer with our campaign. And so I think Seattle can really not just be a progressive city, but it can be a city that can be a model for other cities across the country.
0: Absolutely. That's wonderful. And I know that affordable housing and homelessness are two major pillars of your campaign and the work that you plan to do. Um, So I want to give you a chance to speak a little bit more at length about that. I listened to a really great interview that you did with Teresa Mosqueda. It was really fascinating. And I know that you guys sort of went head to head a little bit in terms of what affordable housing looks like in the future in terms of how you'll deal with the homelessness population. And you said something in this televised interview, I think it came out a couple of days ago, if anybody wants to track it down, that you're really interested in responding to this crisis of homelessness with new sources of local revenue. And so I just wondered if you could explain a little bit more about that. I know affordable housing is an issue that every DSA chapter in the country is thinking about trying to address in some way?
2: So, you know, just a little background about myself. You know, I'm the former executive director of the Tenants Union of Washington State. And so the Tenants Union's job is to fight tooth and nail for the interest of renters. And what we see time and again is that, you know, the city is really where a lot of these crucial decisions are made around land use and affordability. And when we see gentrification and when we see displacement happening, the city has an enormous role to play to really kind of lean into those issues and solve them. But here in Seattle, uh, through the course of my career as a tenant organizer, what I have seen is the political establishment colluding with downtown developers to displace low-income tenants. And what I get so frustrated with is that establishment politicians in our city, people who, you know, by all stretch of the imagination are actually progressive, right? They support a bunch of progressive issues. But when it comes to economic justice issues, they're just not there. And so we've put forward a proposal to raise taxes on corporations to build deeply affordable housing. This is one strategy that I think could have a real difference. And the reason that we want a local revenue source is that we know with the Trump administration that they are going to be gutting HUD and that federal dollars for housing are just not gonna be there anymore. We know that you know in our own state, we have a divided legislature and we're not gonna see a lot of progress on affordable housing at that level. And for the people that I have worked with, low-income families throughout Seattle, the pressing issue of the day is, you know, what can we do to stave off eviction from paycheck to paycheck? And I think what we need to do is to have the city itself be the countervailing force to the market. So that way, it isn't just a matter of us being community organizers and community members pushing the city to do the right thing, but that the city actually becomes an instrument of power to challenge the market. And what I would like to see is rapid expansion of social housing or of public housing that's not just for the very low income, but also moderate and even middle class, because we're seeing that, you know, even here in Seattle, people of pretty decent means can't even afford to live here. So I think that this isn't a real opportunity. For me, housing is kind of a lens to look at this rising income inequality and actually offer some solutions, because how much money are people paying in rent that could be going towards food on the table or or advancing their own uh, livelihood. You know, I kind of like to share a little story that I think really encapsulates what's at stake in our city, and I think that would probably be familiar to a lot of people in other cities across the country. This is actually my second bite at the apple. I ran for city council two years ago under similar circumstances. We were outspent eight to one, but we still got 45% of the vote. This time around, we're using a new public financing system. It's called democracy vouchers, where every Seattle voter gets $100, it's a coupon, essentially, that they can give to a candidate of their choice. And we've already maxed out on democracy vouchers. We've raised $300,000 from over 4,000 people. So that really demonstrates the breadth and depth of our support in the community. And it demonstrates that we are owned by the public. We're gonna be putting the community's interests first. And it's my hope that if we actually win this race, we can show that actually, you know, a grassroots candidate, democratic socialist candidate can win in these races if we can create the tools and resources to fight back against these institutional powers and corporate money.
0: I just want to highlight the democracy vouchers really quickly. That's something that I wasn't familiar with before I started researching your campaign. And the latest number that I've seen is that the democracy vouchers made up 92% of your campaign financing, which I think is a really powerful statement especially as a democratic socialist, that's a really wonderful thing.
2: Yeah, well, I think that it's great, right? So 95% of our donors come from right here in Seattle. Our average dollar donation of real dollars is just 22 bucks. And that, you know, that's better than Bernie Sanders. <laughs> so you know, I, I think for us, you know, uh, that's really compelling, but the backbone of our campaign has been funded through these democracy vouchers. And what I love about it is that somebody who's got a waterfront property in Seattle and somebody who's sleeping in a homeless encampment now have an equal ability to donate to a campaign, right? Like we've actually been going to homeless encampments and educating the residents about the democracy voucher program. Cause you know, there's about 4,000 people who are unsheltered in Seattle. There's about 10,000 homeless folks altogether. If we can start organizing folks who are disenfranchised from the political system and give them the tools that they need so that they can form a political block and a voice, all of a sudden, it becomes much harder to ignore the voice of the homeless. And so, we've actually had a lot of homeless folks actually donating to our campaign through the Democracy Voucher Program. And I can't tell you, as an advocate for the homeless for for my entire life, how just full circle it feels like I've come. You know, from being even a teenager organizing around homelessness issues to running for office and having homeless residents say, "Yes, like we want." We want to financially support your campaign because we know that you're the one that's going to fight tooth and nail to do something big, to do something systemic, to address the rampant poverty that exists in our city.
1: So, John, you mentioned that you started organizing homeless folks as a teenager. That's pretty young to become an organizer. What sort of animated your desire to do that? Like, how did you start organizing?
2: The first campaign I ever worked on was I was a teenager and I I was actually working through our homeless newspaper here in Seattle. It's called Real Change. And it was founded in 1994. And the founder of it was Tim Harris, who's the executive director to this day. And, you know, I never got to meet Tim when I was just a kid working on these campaigns, but you know, I got involved in it because, You know, in Seattle, there was a really great punk rock scene, and so I'd go to shows in the city, and it was just so devastating to me to see this real crisis of houseless people. And the punk rock scene was a very political scene at that time, and I just became politicized. I started getting involved with the organizations that were working directly with those issues, like real change. It was just so clear to me that, you know, you walk down these streets of these glimmering towers, and yet there are thousands of people who are sleeping underneath them. And it just didn't make sense to me. And my my impulse was to try to do something about it.
1: That's great. Thanks for sharing that. So the moral of the story is get involved in punk rock and then you will run for city council too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and I just wanted to um, ask you a little bit more about some of the other people in the mix of this campaign right now. I just want to return to Teresa Mosqueda um, because you know, she has a union organizing background. She is very clearly the establishment Democrats' favorite in your in your campaign bid. And one thing that I think is a natural challenge for leftists everywhere is how do you assert yourself in environments where there's very much a progressive liberal favorite? So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you've approached that reality. But then also, I've noticed in several of her public statements, she positions herself as the candidate who will be sort of a healthy politician with a collaborative approach, that she works well with others. And I think that I understand why she's motivated to kind of make those allusions to inclusivity and her position as a woman, and not only that, but a woman of color but how have you strategized to similarly position yourself as someone who can work well with others? I mean, it's not just the purview of women who can also work well with others, but you know. Absolutely. As a leftist, that's a very big challenge, especially in a world where you're still considered a misogynist if you like Bernie Sanders, so.
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 it's a real, it's a real challenge. And I, I think that, you know, for my part, I've been very consistent with my own values and how I've approached this election and this campaign. And it started um, very early on in this race, where you know originally I was running against the uh, incumbent who was Tim Burgess, and then he dropped out because I think he was worried we were gonna win. And when the seat became open, a bunch of people uh, jumped in the race. And one of those folks was Teresa Mosqueda. So I actually sat down uh, with Teresa and had a conversation with her. And I asked her about her positions on affordable housing, and her positions on police reform. And what I said at the time was that, you know, as a white cisgendered white man, like I in my mind it makes sense for me to take a step back here. And what I said is that there's three options in front of us. There's a narrow path where I stay in. There's another path where I drop out and then there's a third path where I drop out and enthusiastically endorse you. And it kind of depends on how this plays out. And the way that it played out was that in fact, she was not willing to adopt our, our housing platform, which is like, you know, as a housing advocate, that's kind of very important to me. And then as a, you know, a, a person who's very passionate about police reform, especially here in Seattle, where we're under a consent decree for patterns of you know, rampant abuse on discrimination and excessive force, I mean, that's just a red line for me too. And what I heard were non-commitments, and that was concerning. There was multiple opportunities where my opponent could have adopted a strong position on police reform or a strong position on housing, and she did not. And instead, she pointed to a very long, long list of endorsements and said, look at all these organizations and political leaders who have endorsed me. Obviously, I'll, be, I'll do the right thing. And my thing is that if you're not willing to say something publicly about where you stand on something, I think it's questionable how strong you'll be of that if you're actually on the council dais and so i talked to a lot of people a lot of community members and we had a discussion about what would it mean for me to drop out and i think what it would have meant is that there would not have been a champion on police reform there would not have been a champion on housing affordability and when we talk about the issues that our city is facing when we talk about the growing income inequality and we talk about the fact that almost every other year now it seems like a person of color is being shot by our police department it was not acceptable to me to just take her word for it. That, you know, because she's a progressive Democrat means that she's gonna take the right position on these things. So we decided to stay in and we talked to a lot of community members about it. And I, I gotta say that to this day, like it was the right choice because as we've pushed the conversation on police reform, we've found the limits of where she's willing to go. As we've pushed the conversation on housing, we've found those limits on where she's willing to go like we put out a call for new development for 25% of it to be affordable to working class and low income people. My opponent doesn't support that. Instead, she repeats the talking points of downtown developers saying that, you know, that's an, an impossibility. We couldn't possibly accomplish that. We've talked about uh, making sure that in the police negotiation process that, you know, officers be held more accountable and she's been opposed to transparency in that process. And that's been the real crux of this campaign. It comes down to the issues for my part, I am so tired of, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've been at city council in the audience listening to, by any stretch of the imagination, these are people who would be progressive in Congress or they'd be progressive in you know, other parts of the country. But here in Seattle, if we're not the cutting edge, if we're not leading this movement, if we're not pushing the platform that is really gonna create that systemic change, then that conversation will not happen. And that's an enormous responsibility, right? That's an enormous responsibility to say that, well, gosh, you know, we'll have another progressive Democrat on the council, but they're not going to challenge the Chamber of Commerce. They're not going to challenge downtown developers, and they're not going to challenge the police union, right? If we don't have those conversations, and if we don't push that agenda, it does not happen. And that's what I think is at stake with this race. And I think what's amazing is that if we win, we'll demonstrate that a grassroots candidate that has no you know, support from institutional powers can rally the community, can build that organizing power and overcome those institutional interests and win. And I think that's what's at stake here.
0: Would you just talk a bit about what the employee hours tax was?
2: It depends on what state you live in. But in Washington, the state allows only certain levels of taxing authority for the city. One of the taxing authorities that exist in Seattle is something called the Employee Hours Tax. It's a tax on businesses based on how many employees there are and how many hours they work. And it was originally in place to help mitigate infrastructure costs and transportation costs and things like that. And basically big businesses like... Expedia and Amazon, they would pay this tax to go towards paying for the transportation costs of all these workers who are coming in and kind of clogging our transportation system. So it was meant to expand those options. But it doesn't have to be for transportation, it could be used for housing as well. In 2011, the guy that I originally ran against, Tim Burgess, repealed that in kind of a, a gesture to the business community so that the companies didn't have to pay that tax anymore. And to this day, I mean, it's 2017, and that tax has never been renewed. So one of the things that we're calling for is to, to bring that back. And there is a big organizing effort right now. We're right in the middle, or just the beginning stages, rather, of the budget session here in city council. And one of the things that I've been trying to do with this campaign, and I think with some success, is to not just win an election, but also move the political conversation that's happening at city hall right now. And so we've been working in concert with other grassroots organizers and organizations to push the city budget process to create new revenue sources that are progressive revenue sources to pay for the things that we need like affordable housing and and transportation. So I think that it's one strategy that's useful, but also um, the bigger fight, you know, should we win and then we go into 2018, is that we'd actually like to put forward a ballot initiative to the people to raise taxes on large businesses as well. That's a different proposal than the employee hours tax. And it also would have a much bigger impact. We'd like to raise the exemption for small businesses so they don't get harmed by the tax increase, but then you know crank it up for Amazon and other large companies. And that would bring in about $160 million a year for affordable housing. That'd be about 1,000 units of housing a year. And, and that's really the, the crux of our plan to really systemically redistribute wealth in a way to address homelessness in a meaningful way.
0: How have you planned for the kinds of pressures you naturally face as a politician, but then particularly as a democratic socialist, even in a place as progressive as Seattle, so that you remain true to what your values are?
2: I think that actions speak louder than words. So I've pledged to donate about 30% of my city council, you know, my, my personal income, Towards grassroots radical organizing uh, groups like the Transit Riders Union, like the Tenant Union, so that those organizations have resources to do that work in the community to hold the council accountable. So that's a very tangible thing that folks can hold me accountable to. The second thing is that you know I think that for my part I've seen council members go from left of center to center to right, and it's not that slow of an arc, <laughs> you know. I think that if we're going to be doing this work, you have to be in community. That's something that I'm really proud of this campaign is that we show up. You know, when the East African community was trying to get $4 million in the city budget process for senior housing for their community, we were there. We were there testifying with them. When the Chinatown International District Coalition was concerned about displacement because of up zones in their neighborhood, we were there. We were there testifying in solidarity with them that has been my career that's been my life's work you know there's a story that i think it's helpful to kind of talk about i mean this this is about what is your theory of change and this is a big difference between my opponent and myself it's about whether you hold power and that's what's important or whether you build power i think that we need to build power this whole you know narrative that what we need are collaborative politicians I kind of disagree. I don't think that this is about collaboration. If you're collaborating with big business, if you're collaborating with landlords, if you're collaborating with downtown developers, that's a problem. Like these are very powerful institutions. Their voices are well heard at City Hall. What we need are political leaders who are going to stand up to those interests. In my time as the Tenants Union, one thing that's just been instilled in me is that as the head of the Tenants Union, I'm there representing a membership base, and the members are all low-income tenants. I can't compromise away their interests. I can't go back to them and say, well, gosh, you know, this developer said that they could cut us a deal if we do X, Y, and Z, so we're gonna we're just gonna go with that. No, it's, you, you have to say, sorry, this doesn't work for us, and, and our answer is no, until we get to the yes that we need. In my career, there's been plenty of opportunities where You know, I have had the opportunity to sell out, but I chose not to do, right? Because there's too much to lose if we keep electing people that are willing to compromise in this way. When I was running in 2015, I actually got bribed by a developer to talk to my organization and and the tenants we were organizing with to walk back a lawsuit that the Tenants Union had helped instigate that had blocked a $400 million development. My community organizer who was the lead on this was uh, Eliana Horn. And she had done the research and found out that, in fact, the permit had expired. Well, the developer said to me, you know, at the time I was running for city council, they said, well, we'll spend $200,000 against you, or we'll back off on that if you drop the lawsuit. I said, no, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to accept that. And not only that, but the developer was so stupid to put that threat and that bribe in a text message. Um, I got my hands on that text message and brought it to the Seattle Times. The Seattle Times printed a front page story uh, about them trying to shake me down. After that story went live and we, you know, shine light on, on this uh, corruption, the vice president of that development company got fired. The city killed the $400 million project and the tenants got a $5.7 million settlement to go towards affordable housing. As a leader, I've been tested. And what I look forward to is, you know, from, you know, my position on city council, Advancing those grassroots initiatives and causes so that we can actually hold, you know, these these powerful interests accountable because that's what our community needs.
0: Well, thank you so much. That's a really good point to hold on to for everyone as we continue to fight for a place in the electoral sphere. When you all were working on Reverend Carter El-Yatim's campaign, with all the considerations you had to make, all the variables you had to consider, Did you ever sit down as a group and talk about what it meant to be in such a public position and have his politics as having been endorsed by the Democratic Socialists, speaking vocally about his socialist values and where they came from, a very personal story, and have that be the subject of derision, of ridicule? And I'm thinking particularly of another, I believe, a Republican city council person in the race came out and basically just encouraged all other Democrats to disavow Reverend Elia team for his association with the Democratic Socialists. So how do people bear up against that degree of backlash? And how do you maintain the course?
3: This is uh, Abdul Yunus. I was the field director for the Elia team campaign. And You know, it's funny you talk about, you're referring to Bob Capano, and him doing that actually squarely put us in the progressive camp then in the race, which was actually a really great moment for us as a campaign, because, you know, he, he lumped all of the other Democrats together, along with himself and the rest of the establishment machine, and said, these guys are the outsiders, they're what we're up against, and everyone needs to band together and stand up to this. You know, I don't actually remember too many conversations we had about being worried about whether or not he was going to hold on to the values that he was espousing, Father K. Uh, Father K is what we've called him internally. And I guess that's what I'm doing now, too. <laughs> um, and I, I think so much of that was because when you're only beholden to your, the base, the people that are coming out and knocking on doors for you, and you continue to be true to them and the beliefs that have led them to follow your leadership and try to empower you, then there isn't very much to be worried about. And in our case, it was us socialists that were knocking on doors for him, the local progressive community that was looking for something that was more viable than, like, a better shot than what the democratic establishment was presenting them, and the Arab community, which was, you know, organizing for the first time around a political campaign with this vigor. And um, he'd built a lot of trust with all these communities over a long period of time much in the same way that John was saying that, like, the track record, it speaks for itself.
0: Is he actually a member of the DSA? <laughs> or just aligns with DSA?
3: He is a member of DSA. In fact, by the end of the campaign, I refer to it as uh, people falling because most of the campaign team ended up falling to DSA, and they're all <laughs> members now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but, um, yeah, so a bit about his background, he's a Palestinian American, he's a Lutheran minister, and he emigrated to America from Palestine about 23 years ago, and he came here for to get his master's at a seminary in Philadelphia, and afterwards they told him to go to this part of South Brooklyn and try to establish a branch, uh, uh, a church there, uh, I guess branch and church is interchangeable in my world now. <laughs> um. <It's a> congregation. <laughs> um, so that's how he found himself in South Brooklyn. And uh, politically, he had been a member of the Community Board, which is you know, a civilian-led organization, most often appointed by city council members that will make some decisions on the day-to-day operations of uh, a neighborhood. He was doing that for about 16 years. Outside of that, he'd been involved in a lot of interfaith outreach work. So Bay Ridge, the community that uh, one of the neighborhoods that he was going to represent has the largest Arab and Muslim population in New York City. And um, in like a post 9-11 world, those people were dealing with a lot of issues of hate crime and intolerance And he started coalition building with, you know, Christian and Muslim and Jewish and civic leaders to create educational programs and just create more cultural exchange programs that would mitigate some of the negativity that was, you know, coming out in this historically conservative community.
4: Um, If I may, this is Renee Parody, Brooklyn DSA Electoral Working Group Organizing Committee member and National Electoral (laughs) Committee member to get all of my committees right. I think also one of the things that became very clear very early on is that the ELIA team campaign was going to win if it won with DSA's active help and participation. We were going to make the difference for him and you know came close, although not close as we would have wanted, but came close to doing that. And I think that part of holding folks accountable and ensuring that they stick with their politics is showing what you can do for them if they continue to hold true to those politics and what you can do against them or not do for them if they don't. And so I think that we're going to talk a little bit more about how NYC DSA perceives of its electoral work and tries to do it. But I think that model of having a lot of control over your own members and what work they do, and a lot of say within the campaign around how they're going to be canvassing, and then being able to turn out just what are extraordinary amounts of volunteer canvassers, can make the difference in holding someone accountable.
1: What advice would you all give to other DSA chapters considering taking on an electoral campaign?
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, a big part of my decision to be a member of the Democratic Socialists of America is that the value system is so clear. I think that is important. And if that value system comes up against establishment groups or organizational powers that you know, wants you to compromise on those values, I think that you will be surprised by how much support you can build by staying true, staying true to that value system. And that is something that we have seen time and time again. Let me give you an example. Like In the city of Seattle, this made national news, our mayor was forced to resign for a, just a terrible scandal involving child abuse. And nobody, nobody, would call him out. Nobody called on him to resign. No elected leader, no no community you know, members. It was stunning. There was over five accusers. Finally, the executive director of the Gender Justice League, Danny Eskine, had the courage to stand up and say, you need to step down. We were the first campaign, the first candidate or political leader to join that call and call on our mayor to step down. You know, our mayor was Ed Murray. He's a very, one of the most powerful politicians in Washington politics. He used to be the head of the the state Senate. He's, you know, was a very powerful mayor in his own right. And we did that because we knew that the political establishment would be furious at us, but we knew it was the right thing to do. After we did it, we got so many people praising us for being willing to say what others weren't. So if you know that you have that value system and you know you have that platform and you know that the existing political system is not going to deliver the results that your community needs, you still fight tooth and nail for it and you stick to those values. Because that is what is going to actually wake people up and encourage them to get involved again. And it's why we're seeing a resurgence of the DSA at a national level, right? It's because people are like, actually, we can run a socialist agenda and win in this country. We almost got pretty close to it at the national level. And I think that's what's really exciting to me. And that's what I would tell other people who are taking up that fight in their own communities.
5: Hi, this is Tasha. Um, I'm one of the co-chairs for the Brooklyn Electoral Working Group and also on the National Electoral Committee. I would definitely agree with what John said. We definitely experienced a lot of conversations with voters where they were looking for some sort of difference between Carter, uh, el team, and other Democrats. And obviously we could talk about the issues, but we could also point to DSA and the New York City DSA chapter as an organization that had only endorsed two candidates in all of New York City and that we had very high standards. And I think our sort of inability to shift on a lot of the issues and our ability to keep the entire process democratic and really reference an extremely democratic process that landed us at just two very specific candidates really helped us in persuasion for some voters. I also think that if I was going to look back and think one of the biggest challenges are when you're running a race like this as a grassroots, like a truly grassroots organization where nobody's getting paid, it's about power, right? I mean, there's a lot of power dynamics here. And activists and grassroots volunteers do not have a very high status in this in this country or this world. And I think when you are used to volunteering and used to donating your time, for candidates or causes or, or whatever it is, I think you're used to being treated pretty, pretty badly, actually. You're used to being asked to do a lot of work, and you have no power over what happens to the product of that work. And I think one of the things that electoral groups really need to wrap their heads around and it's something that we're still wrapping our heads around and we're constantly reminding ourselves and checking ourselves in different issues is that if we're bringing people to events, if we're turning out people who are going to talk to voters, we have a lot of power and we should demand that that power stay within the organization and within this sort of democratically structured grassroots group. And so there are many ways to do that, by you know, making sure that, as Renee mentioned earlier, that somebody from DSA has a seat at the table when decisions are being made about how to use volunteers, how to structure the strategy, to making sure that the organization is retaining all of the data. So you know, a very, very typical situation for any group is like, you know, volunteers, local volunteers are asked to do all this work. And then all that data just flows up to one sort of single, sometimes national or organizational source. And the people who have done all the work, have no control over what happens with that data. So there are all sorts of ways that as DSA members, you can kind of make sure you have more power. But I think that the main point is that understanding that if you're bringing, you know, dozens of people out a week or hundreds of people over the course of a campaign, you can demand a lot more than you probably think you can. And I think we're very easily sort of swayed into like accepting that, you know, there's an authority, there's an expert, and we're just the people that do the work but I think that we actually can be the experts. I think we are the experts if we're doing work on the ground and we're talking to voters.
0: That's so true and I had never thought of it that way with when you're able to mobilize the numbers that you all were able to and to contribute to this campaign um, that that is a really good opportunity to bargain for more power for DSA and Do it with someone that you align with ideologically is even better, but that's good for other places where maybe you won't necessarily have an out socialist to work with and maybe just a progressive group. So thank you so much for that. Great. Maybe now let's talk about what
1: the most important thing you've learned in the course of the campaign.
2: I mean, I I think the most important thing that that I've learned is that, you know, never underestimate how a small group of people can really come together to change the world. My campaign, when we all started out here, we had 45 people come together and meet. And what we said at the time was that, you know, it wasn't an announcement that we were going to run. It was a, a conversation about, you know, as a community, what do we need? What does our community need? And secondly, you know, if the 45 people in that room can go out and get 400 people to donate $10 so that we can qualify for the democracy voucher program, then we'll run, then we'll make an announcement, and then we'll bring that fight for the things that our community needs on the electoral level. It's really encouraging to see grassroots organizers who have done tenant organizing or organizing in their community around police reform And there's all these different uh, models that that takes. And seeing those folks kind of turn that energy around into a political context and kind of building a a value system that was born out of that organizing experience, right? What was so inspiring and so exciting to me was that all these folks from all these different walks of life who have been doing all this kind of work at the grassroots level come together and say, this is what a community platform looks like. This is what a socialist platform looks like and here's how we're going to fight for it. That's how we were able to organize people throughout the city to qualify for the democracy voucher program. And that's how we are now raising over $300,000 in the voucher program, so much so that we've actually maxed out. We're not allowed to even get any more democracy vouchers. And people are seeing that success build on success, and it's inspiring people to get out. And the vision and platform that we put forward, which is very radical, I think it's, it's refreshing, right? It's refreshing to see that we don't need to accept the kind of incrementalism that we have been told for so long that that is the only way to create change, that it isn't about collaborating with power, it's about confronting power. And that's what this campaign is about and it's what's drawing people to it. So I think the lesson learned is that, you know, if you can bring together a small group of people, you can grow that into a citywide movement and that that is what we have done here.
4: For me, I think the things that I learned or saw us learning is first to echo Abdullah and then Tasha's point about getting greater control. I think part of what we learned is that the experts are not necessarily better at this than your average DSA member, if they've ever knocked on a door or done organizing, that electoral work There's sometimes this sense that it's the clever people in the room who are going to figure out the thing that wins the campaign, and that ultimately, you know, shoe leather politics, like, that's what DSA's strength is, and we are good at it, and as much as possible, we should trust our own instincts around how to organize a community. I think I wish we had started earlier. I think that as early as you can start with a campaign, particularly with DSA, I think we moved Father K and his politics as we took a greater role. I think that, you know, the earlier you start and the greater that person is identified with you and your work
1: is great. I think there are particular skills that we all learned. I think that's helpful to understand. So I've done electoral work, I don't think ever as paid staff. I've been a community organizer for about 10 years, and I've certainly like knocked a bunch of doors for political candidates. But it's funny, I often think about our DSA organizing work. So I think for me as an organizer, I often evaluate my choices about DSA and about organizing from the lens of like, does it build our power? And does it shift power away from the ruling class um, or teach us new skills so that we can continue to do both of those things. But I haven't really thought much about, you know, what does that look like in the context of an electoral campaign? So I think that makes a lot of sense um, that you would use those criteria to evaluate. So John, I know you uh, should probably hop off now. Thank you so much for being on the, the show. And um, I'm excited to hear about what happened.
2: Uh, we are, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciated the conversation. And thank you so much for all the organizing work you all are doing across the country.
0: For more information on John's platform, visit his campaign site, electjohngrant.com, And that's John spelled J-O-N and also visit the Seattle DSA website where they've published a candidate survey where they've asked several questions of all the local candidates for city council, including mayor, and you can learn a little bit more about him. Let's talk about
1: what happened. Um, <laughs> and also, I wanna know like the whole story, but also a little bit about the national electoral work.
4: So the National Electoral Committee was formed this year, and the idea was that it would have two functions, which is first to review and do background dossiers on candidates who are seeking national DSA endorsement to recommend their endorsement to the National Political Committee. And then the second was to get a group of people who had electoral experience to be able to be sort of a brain trust for chapters who are interested in doing electoral work Both in supporting the chapters who have endorsed, nationally endorsed candidates, and as much as possible to be sort of a clearinghouse for information for other folks that are doing electoral work. One of the things that has come up is because DSA is a 501c4 corporation, it can be complicated in certain states for people to do electoral work. Here in New York City, we had to actually form a separate political committee to do it. So one of the things I've been really excited about being able to do is to help chapters across the country figure out how to navigate those rules to be able to do electoral work.
1: Because you're also an attorney, right? Yes, I'm an attorney. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Just wanting to get that on the record. So let's transition to talking a little bit about the campaign, maybe if you can talk a little bit about how you, each of you specifically got involved and why.
5: Yeah, I. Uh, so I did a lot of work last year on Bernie Sanders stuff, co-founded a group called Team Bernie NY, which was an all grassroots group and became kind of a network for um, grassroots activity in New York City. And once that was over, I spent a few months just kind of thinking about everything that had happened and what I wanted to do next. And early this year, and it's crazy to think that not even a year has passed since this has all begun, early this year in about January, I knew I, I had narrowed it down. I knew I wanted to do electoral work and I knew that I wanted it to be grassroots work with an organization that sort of had its shit together. Um, <laughs> Said we could curse. <laughs> no, I'm just laughing
4: because you thought that was DSA. She
5: thought that was Brooklyn DSA. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, to clarify, and I think it's interesting, like, maybe my definition of like who has their shit together is 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 going to differ from other people's. But um I had a hunch that it would be DSA where I landed because during the Bernie campaign, doing work for the Bernie campaign. DSA was really the only other organization that was doing work out on the streets and talking to people and mm-hmm. contacting voters. And I always had a great relationship with any of the DSA people. There, one of the main things that I noticed was there was just this wonderful lack of sort of power play. It was very collaborative. Everybody just wanted to get the job done and had some understanding that doing that meant attracting more people, growing an organization, and getting people out on the streets or to doors talking to voters. So the Those like were kind of my criteria. I knew that I didn't want to join anything that had kind of fierce hierarchy. I knew knew that I wanted to join something that was democratically structured or had the potential to be structured that way. And so I asked around, I knew a few people that were involved with DSA and I think I, of course, went to like a happy hour or two first and then asked around specifically about an electoral group. And luckily one had just been formed not too long before and I went to meeting in January and I mean it really checked off all the boxes for me it was organized there was an agenda it was very open and very inclusive everyone was very friendly and listened to one another and it was very very goal oriented so at that first meeting uh, there was a team of people all the committees in the electoral working group hadn't yet been fully established or defined but there was a group working on researching all the different open seats in the city council to try and identify which district uh, DSA should try to identify a candidate in. And they had actually uh, pinpointed the district where Elia team ended up running. District 43 in Brooklyn was one of the districts that they felt like we should try and find somebody to run in. So there were, it was very it was great and I left that meeting thinking this is it this is what I'm doing I was excited a lot of the people in electoral at that time and and still are I think understand the importance of identifying people who are willing to do lots of work and I was quickly identified <laughs> and given a lot of work to do and really very quickly uh, became part of the electoral working group and I think I think I facilitated some very stressful conversation, at the debate, or conversation at the next meeting. But uh, yeah, I so I was a part of the electoral working group. I honestly wasn't consciously thinking about what candidates we were gonna endorse. I sort of like that's somebody else's department right now. Um, I think the thing that I was really focused on from the beginning was the field team and helping to shape the field team, and as well as the data team, and really like you know, what I talked about earlier, making sure that like all of the, you know, all of these wonderful people that I was working along with understood the value of their work. Cause I think that was one of the most important things that I learned during the Bernie Sanders work was just that if you show up and you bring people to an event, like that is a very powerful thing in this country, in this city. It's hard to get people out and knock on doors. And if you have the ability to do that as an organization, you you can really scare a lot of establishment politicians. (laughs) And so uh, we, you know, several of us uh, worked on building a field team before we ever had a candidate to endorse. We did this by working with other working groups on their campaigns, building a structure where we had event leads, training people who are interested in leading events and then basically showing up for other working groups events, which ended up being very fortuitous for us. A lot of work actually ended up that other working groups were doing ended up being in District 43, Right to Know Act, um, New York Health Act, Free CUNY, all of these other working groups and and, uh, branches were working on these campaigns before we endorsed LU Team and we ended up being able to sort of share our data on that, and go into the ALU team campaign with a chunk of data on voters who were likely to support ALU team because they supported issues that he supported. So that's how I came to ALU team. Uh, I remember the meeting. Uh, oh, this was the meeting that I was facilitating where we were talking about where can where we might find candidates. And Abdullah was at that meeting. I didn't yet know him, but he shouted out the name of a woman who he thought should run in District 43, and she ended up being the campaign manager. Uh, for Carter, Alia team, and that's how he was identified.
3: One thing I would just, you know, underscore is you don't have to settle for uh, a candidate that, you know, doesn't check off all your boxes. One thing that you can do everywhere is follow an issue-based campaign and build a base out that way that's going to inform both the character and the pursuits of the candidates you do inevitably end up, like, uh, supporting. And it'll also build your base out. So I think that was really helpful for us. It was definitely fortunate that so much of our work had also been done in District 43, which is where I'm from, hence me suggesting someone. Um, <laughs> but it's also just been generally good to be able to build that kind of data on people that will you know, support the candidates that we support. So, yeah, at that meeting that Tasha is talking about, I ended up throwing a name of a person I met on a train um, <laughs> on the board. Her name is Kayla Santosuso. She was the former deputy director of the Arab American Association, which Linda Sorsoor was the executive director of. And I ran into her on the train. She was talking to someone about the association, and I just completely interrupted and I said, I don't know what you're talking about but that sounds really interesting and i want to learn more about this so <laughs> can you give me your information and she gave me her business card and then i like went home and i totally like just googled everything about her and i was like wait a second this person is like from the community she has the trust of the arab community she speaks arabic but she's white and like <laughs> she's young and she's charming like this is the perfect candidate for us to support as dsa in this district because you know like this is a strategic candidate So I went back to that DSA meeting and I just, I suggested her name. And afterwards, some people, they followed up with me, which is like one thing that I've noticed about, at least in in DSA, it's been really good in the electoral group specifically. People will take you at your word, trust you and empower you to then go, go forward on the next steps. And they followed up with me and said, hey, did you really mean that? Like there's a person, you know, in District 43. And they're like, why don't you go have coffee with her? So I I went out and I had coffee with her and towards the end of our meeting, I I started talking to her about city council. And she was like, I'm gonna stop you right there. I have a candidate. I'm (laughs) probably going to be his campaign manager, but I can't tell you like the specific details yet. He hasn't announced, but just know that he's Palestinian and he's Christian. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's totally, that's the other inverse. It was like, white girl who speaks Arabic or Palestinian Christian? Like, that's what we need. So then we started just, I started running around um, the electoral working group, getting involved in research, learning more and more about the district, about my district, and uh, helping create some sort of candidate recruitment pipeline. Because so much of what we do in DSA is Process oriented, yes, but we're also setting precedent for ourselves. So it's important to be really be deliberate whenever you are recruiting someone or making decisions. And it's obviously important that they're really democratic, but they also just have to be modular. And so we like started laying out the track as the train was moving forward because we were like up against time. And we created a pretty good recruitment process through which we got um, another candidate, Jabari Brisport, in District 35. Much of that process for candidate recruitment ended up being informed by, and this goes back to the base building and the issue based campaigns we decided to run in DSA. We turned around to our working groups and we asked them, what do you, you care about? What do you want to see a candidate supporting? Like, what are your red flags and what are your green lights? and We spoke with them and worked with them, and we developed a candidate questionnaire, and we developed a recruitment process, also just like getting candidates through the different stages of people vouching for them, people voting on agreeing to put this candidate up into the next stage. That was a lot of what my experience was. And then after that, I ended up getting hired as a field director by the campaign. And I think that that's something that we're going to find ourselves in a position of, often at least early on when there's going to end up being a person who is basically a hybrid representative of both the campaign and DSA who's going to be working for the campaign and that's a pretty empowering position but also an important position to be extremely deliberate and careful about how you use that position because going back to what Tasha was saying there's a lot of potential to abuse that relationship with the grassroots and um, outside of base building and power building, like I, I think it's extremely important that we continue to cultivate the grassroots that empowers us to be in these positions in the first place.
4: I'm, as we've established, a lawyer. I do mostly appellate criminal defense, but I've been a civil rights litigator for most of my career, including on voting rights. And as a result of that, I'd been staff on a couple of different campaigns, including most recently the Voter Protection Director for Bernie Sanders nationwide last year. And after the election, after emerging from my fetal position, I really wanted to get involved outside of work. I'd always been like, I give it the office to leftism. I don't have to go do other things. But this felt so urgent. Uh, So I was sort of casting around for various places to like do my work in. And like Tasha, I was extraordinarily impressed by the DSA meetings I'd been to. And I had this idea that I would do all sorts of different things. And then I ran into someone I'd met at a Verso party because that is... The engine of left politics is who you met at some left party and had a clipboard and was part of the electoral group. And so after the meeting, we went to a bar and I said, I want you to take me to whoever the most important leadership person in electoral is because I want to get involved right away. That was Tasha. I barged in (laughs) on her conversation, insisted that I was someone that she needed to know and it's that's been it since and then i started going to the field meetings and every field meeting i'd say hey guys if you want to do candidate work you're gonna have to figure out like what the legal rules are because dsa is a 501c4 and like you're limited in what you can do and you really got to find somebody who knows this it's not me i mean i hate this kind of law because it's really intricate and it doesn't constrain the power of capital so it's totally pointless but it's also a pain in the ass and every meeting i said that and then we finally had the meeting that was right before the meeting with the campaign, and no one had showed up, and so I learned how to do it, and now that's all I do. Um, But... (laughs) We were at a field meeting and I was like, we really need to come into the campaign with our demands and be like, here's what we want to do. Here's what you should do. And I was still talking about that as something someone else would do. Like my experience as a lawyer on campaigns is always that I have my little, you know, section that I'm doing and not being as involved with the other stuff. And Abdullah looked at me and he said, you need to be at that meeting. And it's that same thing of like people recognizing like you're someone who has something to offer. So I'm going to make sure you're included. And then I became one of the point people for the campaign and ultimately actually ended up doing voter protection for Cotter, which was its own fun thing. As it turns out, it's hard to get a population where Arabic is primary language to be able to vote in New York City. Can you say a bit more
1: about why that is?
4: Under the Voting Rights Act, the only languages that are covered where if you have enough of the people who speak that language in a location that they are required to provide official translations are covered by what Congress thought were significant minority populations that face discrimination in, I think it's 1972. So it includes Asian Americans and Spanish speakers and Native American Pacific Islanders, but it does not include... Uh, Middle Eastern, and North African languages specifically. And so you could have a polling location where 50% of the people are native Arabic speakers and there's no obligation under federal or state law to provide language assistance. Whereas if the same one had 5% Spanish speakers, for instance, they would be obligated to provide that support.
0: So one thing that I found really amazing, um, so you guys submitted, this is the number that I found, 2,850 signatures to get on the ballot. And you only needed 400. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I ballot access is a huge deal for non-traditional candidates. So if you could talk a little bit about that and then the way that DSA knocked on 15,000 doors. So on the ballot access point, um, it's actually sort of a very
4: odd thing. <laughs> Uh, In New York State, the New York State Board of Elections and the election administration up there is really incredibly horrible. I think there's, there's no other way to say it. And one of the ways in which they're horrible is that there's a state law that says you need more signatures than 450 to get on the ballot. But there's a city charter that says you only need 450 for a city council member. This isn't actually something that we were confused about, but it is something to just note because I think it's going to come up if we when we start talking about campaign finance and some of the differences between Seattle and New York is just to say that the ballot access rules are fairly good for New York City Council. You'll need 450 signatures out of a population of maybe – Let's see, it's like 180,000 people in a city council district, of which probably a third are registered Dems.
3: We had 40,000 registered Democrats.
4: So, so out of 40,000 registered Democrats in the district, you needed 450 signatures. The reason why people in New York turn in six or seven times as many is that those signatures are subject, obviously, to challenges. And New York is definitely the kind of state where if you have something that looks like you might be able to get bounced off the ballot in a lawsuit, someone will file a lawsuit against you. So it's a very common practice for everyone to turn in multiple times the amount because the ballot access lawsuits are so vicious and frequent.
0: All right. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. And then if you could talk a little bit about the door knocking. I know this seems very basic, but New York and larger cities have capacity to do this sort of thing. And for smaller chapters and even smaller branches, places that are more suburban or rural, there aren't necessarily the kinds of members who have the experience with mobilizing campaigns. So if you just had anything to say for those of us in smaller and smaller chapters, advice around mobilizing people for campaigns, especially door knocking, which can be critical? Yeah, it's a great question.
5: So yeah, we uh, we were able by the end of the campaign, and this is just DSA, to knock on 18,000 doors. I think we released 15,000 before we had the final numbers, but it ended up being 18,000 doors and having 2,500 conversations with people to reach our goal of 1,000 identified supporters. We actually got 1,001. We reached the goal the night before, the night we finished Persuasion. I really want to point to what Renee said earlier about the experts not necessarily knowing the most and really trusting DSA groups or grassroots groups for your ability and our knowledge uh, if we're doing work on the ground and talking to voters and talking to people in our communities. We definitely scaled up. We didn't start with the amount of numbers that we ended up with going to doors. The electoral group like doubled throughout the time of our work on the Elliott team campaign. Uh, so we brought in quite a few people that were not originally part of the electoral group or were not originally part of DSA. Our work on the Elliott team campaign brought in a lot of people. Yes, we were, I think, very lucky that we had uh, like a small handful of people who had um, campaign experience at the very beginning when we were starting the field team and the electoral working group. But I think we are also very diligent and still are and I think still have to be in making sure that our meetings were very inclusive, that we weren't allowing people to come into our meetings, people who might say like, oh, I have years and years of electoral experience as staff on X, Y and Z or on this organization or whatever, and I'm here to tell you all how to do it. I'm here to be the expert and the authority in this room. We very quickly, I think, created a working culture in our meetings um, and in our work where even if there were people who sort of had experience with this, understanding that this campaign and the work that we're doing as DSA at this moment in time with Trump in office in this district, with this specific candidate was unique. And nobody can be an expert of that. Nobody can say that they know the exact way to go out and campaign and knock on doors. And once you kind of wrap your head around that, that environment attracts people because it creates a totally different space to work in. You know, let's compare the two environments. In one environment, you know, you have a group of people in a room and you get there and you're like, oh, I'm really excited to work on something. And these people are cool and they're nice and I like them. And everybody's got great ideas. And then the sort of expert comes in and says, you do this, you do this. This is how it's done. What you just said is wrong. I'm going to shut down your ideas nobody wants to work in an environment like that like nobody even if your idea is like quote unquote wrong you want to be able to be in a, in a situation where you can talk about it and learn from it and make mistakes like we definitely as chapters as branches as electoral working groups need to have the space and the trust to make mistakes and learn from our mistakes and then if you look at the you know the other version i think the version that we've we've done a pretty good job of cultivating so far though i think it's always a challenge Our our meetings are open to everybody. Really, like anybody who wants to get out there and work is pretty quickly empowered to lead events to give feedback on it, to be part of discussions. There is as much work as anybody could possibly want to do and more. So I think that that kind of culture and environment that you cultivate is actually really key to growing the organization and getting the numbers. And it's not about having experts. It's about being inclusive and collaborative and respectful of one another.
4: I absolutely agree with Tasha, but I'm always conscious, you know, in New York, obviously, like we're the largest local in the country and we were dealing with two city council races. So like if we have, I think somewhere on the order of 3000 members, we are looking at like maybe a one to 10 in terms of the number of voters that we're trying to activate in both of these races, if that, I think it's probably a little bit lower. But I think You know, one is that no matter what kind of work you're doing, if a goal is eventually to do electoral work, to be thinking about how to build up the kind of capacity that's going to allow you to run your own canvases, to be doing the kind of work that keeps people accountable in that way. And so while, you know, that may not be possible for smaller branches, I think that always has to be the goal in figuring out how you're going to get there for your electoral work. And then second is that I think local campaigns obviously offer the best possibility for this because the numbers are so much smaller, right? You may have a city where city council district is going to, the big city in your area might be like out of reach for you right now, but there are a lot of smaller localities. Like we have right now two nationally endorsed candidates that are running for at-large city council in a 50,000 person town, right? And so their win number is somewhere in the order of 4,000. So if you had a chapter with Forty people, you'd have an even better ratio, I think, although I'm bad at math than we had here. Right. So and if you do that and you're able to sort of attract people into the electoral work through that and show that you have the power to turn people out, it's going to snowball. Right. Like it's going to it's going to help expand all of that. And I think often electoral work can get put in opposition to other work. I think that to the extent that electoral work dovetails, even if you have a candidate that's not gonna win, if you're running someone who is the person who's out on front on your chapter's signature issue that you're working on with respect to X, Y, or Z, like that's gonna help you show up for that coalition. It's gonna help identify you with that issue. There are things that you get out of electoral work other than simply winning that election. I did, just, I did just want to reiterate, like, for small branches who may feel they don't have the knowledge, like, it's not rocket science. Like, you're knocking on doors, you're trying to persuade people to vote for a candidate, and then in the last week, you're trying them to get out and vote. And one thing that we really tried to do on the NEC and in Brooklyn Electoral Working Group is that because we do happen to have people who have some experiences to make sure that we are able to help out other chapters as much as possible. So I know all of us are always... Open to getting an email or a, however it is that young people communicate with one another um, about questions and and how to how to think about starting to do that.
3: Um, I would just like to add that when um, young people communicate using Snapchat, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also wanted to just say that one of the big things that my takeaway was even outside of DSA, this was this was New York City DSA's first you know big electoral campaign this was my first time being a field director and this was our campaign manager's first time being a campaign manager and this was our candidate's first time being a candidate and we still gave everyone a run for their money. Um, Sometimes I think that it was largely due to our inexperience. We weren't burdened by a lot of the conventional wisdom and it allowed us to pivot in ways that were unexpected and it allowed us to just be very creative in our messaging and you know, just going back to the conventional wisdom point, it seems to me that some of the main ways, the times when I would want to like look back and things that I would want to undo or redo a different way, it largely is when we followed the path of conventional wisdom. So I in our, during our messaging, for instance, what we were saying during Persuasion at the Doors, we followed a pretty traditional door wrap initially until we realized that the context the political context that was drawing people to our campaign that draw to our volunteers to DSA and it was something that was unprecedented and we wanted rather than have people stick to talking points what we realized was more effective was letting people just talk at the door about why they're there what makes them show up be a volunteer knock on a door and drive in from or take a train from like, you know, an hour and a half away. And that resonated more with our constituents than any of the conventional talking points that we were attracted to initially.
4: I think all of us, when we were listening to John talk about his experience running this campaign and what issues have emerged in distinguishing him from his general election opponent, I think all of us felt they were incredibly resonant with our experience. I think the one thing that's very, very different between Seattle and New York is that New York is an a state that is run by, or New York City is run by the Democratic machine. Just from top to bottom, it is a state where the party exerts extraordinary control over who gets into office. The sort of most salient of these for our purposes is probably the fact that in order to vote in a primary in New York, you have to register as a member of the Democratic Party in October of the previous year. So we are right now approaching the deadline for anyone who wants to vote in the Democratic primaries during all of 2018. And so the number of people who are registered in the party is extraordinarily small, given the general population and how many people vote Democratic in the city. And it tends to skew towards people who are not first time voters, who are not young, who are not left, people who are instead very much within the machine. District 43 was an open seat in the sense that the incumbent wasn't running for re-election, but it wasn't in the sense that our primary opponent in both sense of the word primary, had been anointed by the machine and was endorsed by not just people like Democratic clubs or the outgoing city councilmen, but also many ostensibly progressive groups like the Working Families Party and other unions that made the decision to sort of go with the our guy rather than the outsider. And so we faced an uphill battle from the beginning in that respect so el drew his support, I think, from two primary communities, which is first the Arabic, uh, Middle Eastern, North African uh, Muslim community in Bay Ridge. It's a substantial population in that city council district. It was one of the pockets of Bernie support within New York City, which otherwise went pretty overwhelmingly for Hillary. And so we felt that that coalition was possible in between the sort of what we would call Bernie voters... You know, and in some sense, it's a mistake to put these in opposition because many members of the Arab American community voted for Bernie in large part due to Hillary Clinton's foreign policy positions. And so we thought that there was a shot here by bringing in what we might call DSA voters and activating the Arabic community. But it was an uphill battle because so many of those folks were not registered in the party. So we identified a win number and thought we could make it. We're hitting our numbers, and we came fairly close. We lost by 600 votes to our nearest opponent, the winner. (laughs) So we really only needed to have flipped 300 more folks than we did, and it was that small a margin. So our numbers guru has looked at it, and what he thinks happened basically is that We identified that many number of voters who were sort of considering voting for Elia team. And those voters moved back to the eventual winner over the course of the last few weeks of the campaign. They sort of came home to the machine, if you will. And there are many ways in which that happened, like large and small. Like our understanding is that, I mean, the, the unions reached out to their members. Democratic clubs reached out to their members. Calls went out on Election Day. You know, we've heard that Bill de Blasio himself called two of the unions to ensure that they came in on the side of our opponent because they were going to stick it out and not endorse. So I think it's really a story of coming very close and just in that last month, the machine really reasserting itself and taking it.
3: One other thing that we think impacted that switching over of voters uh, that were early supporters of ours back over to that the machine that Renee was just talking about was that we, because of our show of overwhelming force, our incredible volunteer base, both DSA and outside, we had by the end of the campaign about 600 volunteers that were in our rosters that had come and knocked at least once. We started going through our universe earlier and faster than any other candidates were even out there. There are people knocking on doors. And so we identified a lot of support early on that hadn't been exposed to any other candidates. One thing that we've thought about now is having returned to those people later on to reiterate our messaging could have been one way we could have retained them. Another thing that we did was through our unapologetic anti-racism over the course of the campaign, we did things like taking down a Confederate monument in our district. And that got us um, a lot of attention from our base, but it also put us on the map with some of those early supporters who didn't really completely understand how, you know, left and Progressive we were and it started, you know drawing out some of their more reactionary sides Another thing we experienced was a lack of access to buildings and this may be the case in other parts of the country Especially in other cities. We had a lot of polling sites that were located in senior centers We were unable to get access to them throughout the campaign as volunteers as the campaign And we know that our opponents were able to get access there. And, you know, as as you know, the older generations tend to vote a lot more. So these were, you know, just locked down votes that had only been exposed to one or two candidates. And a lot of the way that access works is through long-term relationships that the establishment can hand over to you when you are kowtowing to them. That's something that we learned as well. One last thing that I would want to talk about is something that we can do better. In New York City, we have, you know, we have the labor branch, we have the electoral working group, we have different branches all over, and labor has a tremendous amount of power to share, and ele- vice versa. Electoral has a lot of power to share, too. And because we're all comrades on the left, like we alone don't have a very good shot going up against establishment interests, a lot of which are, you know, your more centrist unions. So having really progressive members and that can push their unions in the same direction as the candidates that we support collectively is something that I think that we can all really work on and build strategies around together because I think that's sort of the difference between going from strategy to tactics with electoral work, so.
5: So I I don't have much to add to sort of the overview of the campaign. I think that was very comprehensive. The one thing I do want to add as far as numbers is that turnout, uh, voter turnout, was way higher in District 43 than it was across the rest of the city. The average voter turnout across New York City was 14 percent, and in District 43 it was 22 percent, which is 60 percent greater. And I think that was due to just the sheer number of grassroots activists, both DSA as well as the grassroots from the Arab and Muslim community that were out all the time from a very early date till the very end. I think, you know, we've we've been we've. We've been very deliberate in looking at uh, lessons learned and what we can do better for next time, which is absolutely how we should be approaching every race, even races that we win. But I do want to point to two things that we did that were real successes of this race in our work with Elia team. I think one of the things that was really inspiring to a lot of us and something that we thought about but I don't think really like felt until the very end of the campaign was just the um, really powerful coalition that was built between DSA members and local community members that were also helping the Elliot team campaign and specifically the Arab and Muslim community in District 43. For most of the campaign, DSA, we were a little separated from the rest of the campaign on purpose because one of our asks was that we run all our own canvases, was that we retain our own data, that we sort of create our own process and have the sort of space to be able to train our own people to run all of this stuff and lead all of our own stuff. But because of that, we were a little separated from other groups that were working with the campaign until the last week of the campaign leading up to GOTV and during GOTV, we were all working together in the same offices. And I think that's when like, it really hit a lot of us how amazing this whole experience was that... You know, whatever the outcome of the race, we had really all together, all groups, not just DSA, created the sort of foundation of future work that, you know, winning a race in that district is now very much attainable. And we all learned so much. And I think we all feel like the next city council race, the next state race, whatever it is, we're going to do a lot better. Right now, I know that Abdullah has been working on voter registration projects in that district, but I think it's really just the beginning of our work in that area. And then I also just want to talk real quick about the kind of teams that DSA built and the kind of structure that grew throughout the work on this campaign. And, you know, to some degree, you can do it without a campaign. But when you have the sort of when you have an electoral campaign like this with with deadlines, it really encourages people to step up a lot quicker. And I would guess that approximately like 90% or more of the people that were leading events and really running things on the ground for the last few weeks of the campaign from DSA's side had never before worked in electoral politics, um, had never knocked on a door before, had never led an event before, like didn't know anything about voter data or like a one through five Scale when you're talking to a voter, and they were running everything, and it was incredibly impressive and inspiring to see people come to events and take ownership of things in that way. I had one conversation with this kid, who I say kid, but he was he was a he was an adult. Um, <laughs> 20, so he was like 25, um, who uh, started showing up to canvassing events a few weeks before the election, and. He was so excited and he was like, yeah, I'll be there tomorrow. And it went great today. And I talked to this people and man, I love this. The conversations with people are so interesting. And like, it just is is very surprising. And I was like, have you ever done work like this before? And he was like, no, nothing even remotely close to this. I've never done any work like this before, but I, I now like, I can't, I can't get enough of it. Like, (laughs) and, and that's maybe a slightly extreme version, but I think that there were a lot of people that were leading events by the end never envisioned that they would be doing this. Right. Like they were sort of, I think, at times in a state of shock, like wondering, like, how did I even start doing this? But I think it's a real testament to the team of people, the way everybody works with each other and the candidate and the team, um, the other teams that were uh, helping other teams campaign.
4: I just wanted to elaborate a little bit on how Much, I think we were all nodding along listening to John Grant talk about his experience in Seattle, where you have, you know, what is ostensibly this incredibly left city, but it's there's so much income inequality. You basically have ultra rich folks, you know, cheek by jowl with the homeless. There was a 40 percent increase in the number of unsheltered homeless in New York last year. Uh, in the official census, which is usually considered to be an undercount. So there are 4,000 people, you know, in New York who are unsheltered every night. And, you know, as he said, you have the middle class getting squeezed, too. I mean, everybody in New York knows that the rent is too damn high, as they say. And, you know, you basically have entire neighborhoods that are being decimated as people are being forced out through high rents. And, you know, that the progressive, quote unquote, and, Democrats end up being the establishment because the city's so blue. And because they're the establishment, they're reluctant to take on the developers. They're reluctant to take on real reform. Instead, it's a lip service to things that uh, don't threaten the established power, but look good in a campaign ad. I think affordable housing and police reform are two of our largest issues. And, you know, with respect to affordable housing, our Cotter was the only candidate in the race who did not take money from developers, which was a huge talking point in that everybody loved it. It didn't matter where you identified the political spectrum. If you're an ordinary person in New York, you hate real estate developers. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's just true. And that also that idea that like you don't need to be collaborative in politics. You need to have solidarity in politics and so people who are going to go along to get along and work better with city council is just another way of saying it's someone who's going to make us comfortable we also have a situation here where like in seattle there's a campaign finance system that allows candidates to run without having to raise huge amounts of private donations new york city has a six to one matching funds i always forget the ratio but it's six to one for the first 250 dollars from a resident of New York City if I'm remembering correctly okay 160 but so basically you can raise if you raise small dollar donations you get them match six to one and there's um, not quite the same limit on what people can can raise in Seattle they have a $250 limit here we have a $2,500 limit I'm um, Forgetting numbers all over the place. But it's still, it's, it's something. And as we're looking to next year and thinking about how to deal with state politics, the fact that there aren't those matching funds is of real concern to us. But it's, it's just another way in which the structure can really end up making so much of a difference in what races you get involved with the DSA. And then I think the big difference and the reason why John is in his general and Cotter isn't is that in Washington they have the jungle primaries where it's the top two finishers that proceed to the general Whereas here it's this rigid party system where it's winner take all in the primary election. So if we were in Seattle, Cotter would be in the general because he was one of the top two vote getters. In fact, he got more votes, I think, than every Republican combined. Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, which is which is yeah, it's it's the it's whole thing. But so so if we had that structure, we would now be in the general. So those were those were the things that I was thinking about when we were listening to John speak.
1: I just want to say thank you to all of y'all and also to John and to Rob, our amazing sound engineer. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Thank you.
0: It was really great talking to you all and I think what you were able to do was amazing and I only hope that other chapters can replicate that process on their own with their own elections.
1: And if people want to replicate that process, they should get in touch with y'all, right?
4: I am on Twitter, uh, Renee Parody. My I have the I have the Twitter account. Uh, uh, it's two E's. Parody is with no uh, like Paradise with no E. And the best way to get in touch with me is definitely email, which is parody.rene at gmail.com.
5: Uh I am also on Twitter and it's at Tasha Van and that's T-A-S-C-H-A-V-A-N. And then my email address is my last name, Van Aken, V-A-N-A-U-K-E-N, at gmail.com.
3: Um, I am uh, on Twitter. Uh, my name is Abdullah the Kid. And my email address is abdullahmunis at gmail.com. That's A-B-D-U-L-L-A-H-M-Y-O-U-N-U-S at gmail.com.